Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 6th in, uh, on the West Coast of the United States. It's Labor Day here. Um, a day perhaps rather incongruous in America, supposed to celebrate workers, the working class. Uh, the headline on CNN is uh, perhaps uh, 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 unwillingly uh, paradoxical. Labor Day 2021, what's open, what's closed? I guess everything should really be closed if we're supposed to be honoring workers. Um we have lots of backward-looking pieces um, in uh, in the press today. Labor Day, according to uh, one opinion piece in the Washington Post, is supposed to be a celebration of solidarity and freedom of the working class. Uh, the British Guardian suggests that the U.S. workers probably aren't winning when it comes to labor and Labor Day in the United States. And that's confirmed in the Washington Post uh, headline, uh, millions in the U.S. lose jobless benefits as federal aid expires, thrusting families and economy under uncertain past. Um, lots of other pieces about the uh, very demoralizing nature of labor uh, in the United States. We've had a, a lot of shows about this. One piece in the New York Times about other people's uh, rotten jobs. Um, many of the pieces in the media today look backwards, looking for uh, examples from solidar of solidarity from American Union history. But there's another way of trying to celebrate Labor Day and solidarity, rather than looking backwards, looking forwards. Um, my guest on the show today uh, isn't that well known as a science fiction writer. He's better known as, as one of Greece's most famous economists, perhaps its most famous economist, uh, left-wing economist, Yanis uh, uh, Varoufakis. But he has a new book out today, Another Now, uh, uh, a speculation uh, on the future. And I'm thrilled that he's talking to us from Greece today. Yanis, uh, most of our uh, viewers will not be familiar with you as a science fiction writer. As I said, you've made a name as a, a troublemaker on the international scene, Greece's uh, economics minister, the guy who exposed um, the rottenness of the EU and the rottenness of the international capitalist system. Why did you decide to imagine another now, a world about 2025 and 2036? Entirely speculative uh, Yanis's version, perhaps, of Star Trek. Well, I've always been a Trekkie. Thank you, Andrew, for the invitation, for having me on your show. I've always been a Trekkie and a science fiction buff. And I always, you know, like all, I, I, is, aren't we all keen to write a novel? Um, I wasn't that keen, I have to say. But we all have an, a, mo a novel within us trying to get out. Uh, for most of us, you know, we shouldn't dare do it. And I, I assumed that I was one of those people that should not be allowed to write a novel. Why did I do it? Look, uh, as a lefty, yes, I am a lefty, I confess to the charge. All my life I've been skirting, avoiding the difficult question. Mate, if you don't like capitalism, what's the alternative? 
the moment you start as a lefty trying to answer that question, then you start mumbling because you really want to distance yourself from the Soviet Union, which was quite dystopic. Social democracy is on the wane and quite unappealing, unappetizing. So what's the alternative to capitalism? We don't like this beast which uh, rules over our lives. Um, so I always wanted to, to avoid avoiding the question. And then when I decided to sit down and write it, to write my thoughts on how could we have organized life, work, land use, uh, money, uh, trade, uh, our democracies differently, uh, I realized that, uh, that I... <laughs> I'm bamboozled by very strong disagreements with myself. Uh, because it's one thing to describe what is, that I can do. I've done it all my life. It's quite another to, to try to imagine a realistic utopia. Um, so because I was disagreeing with myself, I thought, well, the best way of uh, writing this thing up is to have different characters uh, disagreeing with one another. So I could put different views of mine in the mouth of different characters. And, but the moment you start thinking that way, uh, you are in a rabbit hole that leads you to writing a novel. And because I'm a Trekkie and a science fiction buff, and I always thought that humanity's uh, dalliance with technology will, in the end, take us to one or of two extremes. Either the Matrix, where the artifacts, the robots, the androids that we create end up ruling over us and using us as um, you know, sources to be exploited, or towards Star Trek, which is the ultimate liberal communism. You, as you say, you, you introduce three characters in the book, or there's more than three characters, but there seem to be three main characters, Costa, Iris, and Eva. And they all capture a piece, I guess, of the left or of the liberal left, our contemporary left. T tell me about your characters, what, why you're using them and what they're saying and what they offer the novel. What they capture is uh, the three strands of modernity that crashed and burned. Three um, gross failures of the human spirit and of progressive movements. Not of the left, but of modernity. So there is Iris representing the, the left wing. Um, a Marxist lesbian who can't stand Marxist or lesbian. From, so, from Brighton of all places, Yanis. Have you spent Brighton, some time indeed. in... You've, have you spent some time at the University of Sussex? I was intrigued. One of the funny things about most science fiction books like yours is that in some ways they're quite prosaic. They're very much down to earth. One of the more interesting things I thought about, and I think it's a wonderful book, uh, it, it, I, I, are your little um, vignettes on, on, on life in Brighton and, on, and amongst left-wing uh, economists at, at British universities, which I know you've had some experience of. The dystopia of university life as I called it. Um, no, no, I, I do happen to have an honorary doctorate from the University of Sussex, but I didn't spend any time there. Any they might time take, there. Uh, having, if they read this book, Yanis, they might take it away from you. No, I don't think so. No, it's I'm teasing you. In very good light. Uh, I was an Essex person, but I had friends from Sussex. Uh, so that's Iris. She represents the hope of the left from the 19th century onwards that uh, humanity can band together, overcome capitalism, and create better men and women. And that, of course, crashed and burned in the gulag and in the failures of social democracy. And, and, Iris, uh, really and, and, and Iris is obsessed, of course, with Margaret Thatcher, who sort of... Um, who she appreciates at the, time, at the same time, remember? 
Yes, a, you know, she hates everything that Thatcher did, but she keeps saying to herself, you know, if only we had somebody like her on our side of politics, you know, and yeah. she prefers her, Thatcher's honesty to the dishonesty of the left. So she, yeah, that, that's part of me, right? But then there is Eva. Eva is a right winger. She's a former banker and she's a neoliberal, what you would describe as a neoliberal economics professor. But she represents another strand of modernity. The strand which, beginning with Adam Smith, and then moving on to people like Schumpeter and the Austrians, uh, and, and even Milton Friedman, uh, believed very strongly that if you let the market do what it thinks it should be doing, uh, then uh, good things will happen for humanity. Humanity will be liberated, will all be both rich and free. And that, of course, crashed and burned in 2008. So Eva is just like Iris, is carrying on her shoulders a major defeat. She used to work for Lehman. She was fired. She was uh, disgruntled. She did a PhD in economics. She belie still believes in the market as uh, the best way of organizing economic life. But she's injured, just like Iris is. And then there's Costa, who's a, a critical. Well, so they're both, um, but both Eva and Iris are disappointed idealists, I guess, in a sense, people who. Indeed. Who, who want the world to be better, but um, whose 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 vision uh, have has crashed and burned. And then, of course, there's Costa, who's the, really the the key guy. Of course, a Greek in the book, Yanis. Uh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah, Costa is not me, by the way. I mean, I I don't. No, you're you're in it as well as a as a sort of narrator. Yeah, well, Costa exists. He's a real person. He's somebody I've known for decades now. Uh, of course, not in the way that I depict him in, in, the, in the novel. The novel is uh, fiction. Uh, but Costa represents the technological hope, the hope that a lot of technologists, especially digital technologists, had that the Internet would liberate us, would democratize society. Remember that? Yeah, I Fantasy do. That some of us had, even I had it at some point, or hope, fantastical hope. Uh, so he, he, he's, he's a young man from Crete. He goes to Germany to become a, a computer scientist. That's, he succeeds in doing. He builds hardware. Uh, he works for uh, cutting edge companies, building anything from missiles all the way to bionic ears and eyes. Uh, and, and he has this view that technology can liberate humanity. But just like Iris's left wing version of modernity and Eva's right wing version of modernity, uh, he realizes that big tech is taking the internet over, the digital technologies over, and turns them into instruments of enslavement. And he tries to create a machine that will um, not do anything in practice, but it will act as a mental experiment for all of us to understand that we are being all enslaved. We are, we are all becoming proletarians, including the rich people. Um, uh, and, and is this called the Halpervam? The That's heuristic right. algorithmic pleasure and experiential value maximize. And it basically <laughs> is a device that invents another now. Is that fair? Only by accident. What Costa wants to do in the novel is something that Plato first mentioned. Plato has this story which uh, always struck me as very significant from the Republic, his Republic, in which he says he wants to explore with his students and his readers. That's Plato. He wants to explore uh, what power really means and the paradoxical nature of power. So he creates this uh, parable. There was this shepherd 
who was walking in the bush in the bush in the bush and he discovered he found a ring and when he put it on he realized that if he turned it he became invisible and that gave him immense power so he becomes invisible he turns the ring goes to the palace um of uh, lydia which is the state in which he lived uh, and murders the king and, and and becomes king himself because he could he was invisible uh, and the whole parable in the end allows plato to talk about the way in which he was enslaved by his own power so in other words power is overrated it doesn't liberate, liberate you exorbitant power enslaves you that that was the the platonic uh, story and Kostad is trying to create a modern day digital technological marvelous machine that would give you more than what you have hoped for because not only will it satisfy all your preferences like you know Zuckerberg would like to do with Facebook's metaverse notion not only would it, it satisfy all your preferences but it will satisfy all your preferences at once <laughs> and he, he Kostad thinks that if he creates this machine and the machine can do it, then he can put to you, to me, to everybody, to our audience, uh, a very difficult choice. Put us in front of an awful dilemma. Do you want to join this machine forever and have your all your dreams, all your desires, all your preferences come through at once? But the deal is, if you say yes, you will stay in that machine forever. It's, and, um, it, it's, it's, classic, it's classic Greek mythology, isn't it? I mean, course, it could have come out even, of uh, yeah, a technological twist. Because, you know, allow me to spill the beans now. This friend of mine, Costa, the real Costa, has been working for years creating bionic ears and eyes. Uh, he worked for Cochlear uh, in Australia, you know, the Cochlear implants. And more recently, he was in California um, working on uh, brain uh, computer interfaces. So, you know, I got this idea that such a platonic device could be constructed one day in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley would use this in order to extract maximum value from us. We would charge us by the second to connect to this machine. But Costa wants to use it in order to liberate humanity. But some, an accident takes place and he discovers the other now. Uh, as, as you say, uh, uh, there's this one quote in the book I love, uh, who needs mythology when reality is so unreal? Um, cu current reality, in a sense, then your reliance on Costa, who's a real based on a real person, and the quote unquote innovations in Silicon Valley make this quite a contemporary book in spite of its science fictional nature. It doesn't seem entirely unimaginable, does it? But, Andrew, the reason, the reason why I adore science fiction is because it's got nothing to do with the, the future, it's all about looking at our present predicament uh, from innovative angles. It's all about the now. If, even if you, you know, look at Asimov or you know, the, every great science fiction writer, Star Trek, it's not about what happens in space with the Klingons and uh, the Ferengi. The Ferengi are, for instance, you know, uh, a fantastic way of um, studying neoliberalism. Uh, the clash between the Klingons and the Federation is a way, a way of recasting the clash between the United States and the Soviet Union. So it's all about us. It's about the present. That's what good science fiction is about. Uh, and, uh, and your science fiction is a kind of mashup of lots of other science fictions. You, in this imaginary world, in this other now, you have the Blade Runners, 
Um, you have uh, the crowd shorters. Um, you have all sorts of uh, movements and characters that are built very much on contemporary reality. Is that fair? Yes, and if I if I may venture the rather self-serving uh, proposition that take the crowd shorters. These are all organizations which, in a particular chapter, which explains how capitalism was overthrown in the other now, uh, I have described, tried to describe these fictional groups that brought capitalism down. One of them is the crowd shorters. And what they do is, led by a woman called Esmeralda, who used to, to work for Lehman Brothers as well, and she was a financial engineer, and she got really peeved by what Lehman's had been doing in her name and with her help. And she organized other financial engineers to crowd short. In other words, to get together, pool resources together, and help others short companies that are misbehaving, companies that are abusing the public interest, and so on. And re remember the GameStop story. Yeah, so this that is classic GameStop. That happened six months afterwards, after the publication of my book. And people were calling me up and saying, are the crowd shorters real? Are they happening? Is this what's happening now with GameStop? No, it's not exactly what's happening. No, because my crowd shoulders had a political um, uh, plan, a political uh, agenda and manifesto. Uh, the GameStop crowd shoulders were not of that kind. But there are similarities, and some, some of them are, are quite startling. You also have uh, another group who will be very familiar, I think, to many of us, the Wikiblowers. The role of technology then is really important in the book. Um, as you say, you're not a, a Silicon Valley guy. You're obviously not. You're based in Greece. You're a, a, a polemicist, a writer rather than entrepreneur. But uh, you have something in common with Costa, don't you? You have some faith in of technology. Course. Oh, incredible faith in technology. I love technology. You know, uh, my father was a met is still with us. He's a metallurgist. Uh, so he studied metals the history of metals, and he was working in a steel factory and so on. And he, from the age of five, instructed me, I think quite usefully, to the role of technology in speeding up history. You know, here in Greece, we have a lot of that history, I mean. So he was explaining to me how when they moved from copper to iron and then from iron to steel, uh, history was no longer measured in the centuries, but in the decades. And with Bessemer's invention of uh, you know, very cheap ways of producing steel, and then with the second industrial revolution, with electromagnetism, we moved from you know the steam engine, we moved to the Edisons and the Fords. So technology is, is, is for me, is a great liberator. But like all wonderful instruments, it can be used for ill, and it can enslave us. That's why I'm, I, I, earlier on, I said that we have, we have to choose between the two extreme trajectories, one leading us to the Matrix and the other is leading us to, the, to Star Trek. I don't believe in going back. I, I really love the idea of going back to the woods and living you know, a bucolic life. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want that. I want a technologically advanced life. But I don't want Zuckerberg to control it. And I don't want Jeff Bezos to control it. No, I don't think any of us do. Yanis, uh, uh, people be familiar with your book, Talking to My Daughter, another wonderful book about economics or how capitalism works. Might it be fair to say that this is a book in which you're talking to your father? There's um, quite a lot of stuff about 
uh, and, and, and I hope I pronounced this right, Hephaestus, uh, the, 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 Greek, um, uh, the Greek god of blacksmiths, metalworking and carpenters. And the madness of Hephaestus is uh, one of the sort of parables in, um, in, in the book. What were you saying about this Greek mythology? What should we be learning from it? Uh, by the way, let me, uh, let, and, let and me pronounce it, it correctly. Well, let me make it easier for you because in Latin it's Vulcan. Okay, yes, yes. as well, doesn't it? Yes. So it's it's the god of technology. It's the guy who uh, has a limp. He's not very good to look at, and he lives inside a cave in Mount Mount Olympus, and he's an ironsmith and he makes things. So he's the one that created the magical armor of Achilles. Uh, so, you know, that he captures the, and his madness is the madness of having a capacity to, is the result of having the capacity to produce magnificent artifacts that liberate humans, while at the same time, those very same instruments can be used in order to murder us en masse, to enslave us and so on. And yes, um, I, I, I had to put it in there because Costa feels a bit like that. Costa is a fantastic technologist and he fears that in his attempt to use technology to liberate us, uh, he may have provided Zuckerberg and Facebook and Big Tech with magnificent tools for enslaving us and making us permanent clients uh, of their machinery. Is that what the, the Panopticon code is or was in the book? Uh, their uh, big brother had a weapon they called the Panopticon Code, of course, which was invented by Jeremy Bentham in, in, in the 18th century. Yes, except that in, in my, another now, in, in the world, in the, the now that the rebels, the techno-rebels have created, the Panopticon is reversed. And it is used in the same way that Julian Assange of WikiLeaks uh, envisioned it's, it was like a digital mirror that was turned onto the face of Big Brother so that all of us are watching him, watching us, and therefore sort of counterbalancing Big Brother and annulling his power over us. So, so, so you believe in the panopticon if it can indeed be reversed and Orwell's cameras in 1984 or, or, or Jeremy Bentham's uh, prison, 18th century prison, if we're the ones watching the watchers, then it can all work using well, technology. It can be used in order to stop the very few from having exorbitant power on the very many for a, right. for a start. And look, the, 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 in, Andrew, we live in a world where individuals are absolutely transparent. So big tech and the NSA and the, you know, the Greek CIA and so on, they know everything about us. They watch us all the time. And they themselves, those who are in power, are opaque. Now, what I would like to do, and this is what the whole story about reversing the panopticon, is to make them transparent and us opaque. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely idea, Yanis. I'm not sure how practical it is. Um, there's a lot in the book about the failure uh, of the traditional left, and you're, uh, you've spent your life as, a, as a, a, a pugilist, an ideological pugilist on the left. What would you like the, the left to learn from your book? Uh, we can't have another Thatcher. That's obviously absurd. But, but what can the left learn 
from your vision of another now? What should, what are you trying to tell traditional leftists who are still talking about class solidarity and going back to their marks rather than looking in the 20, 21st century? Well, there are many things I would like to say, but primary amongst them, if I have to choose one message, it is you know, beware of the little fascist that lives in you and in me. Because what we have proven in the last 100 years or so as leftists is that in the name of liberation, we create gulags by which we enslave others and ourselves. Uh, and this is why in the beginning of the book, the great revolutionary Iris is being buried in a coffin that is half black, half red. Red for the revolutionary fire burning in her heart and blacked, black so that um, we are reminded, or she reminds us, even on her funeral, uh, of the dark side within each one of us. So we have to, we have to fear not only the power of the corporations, of the multinationals, of the uh, capitalists, but also the power of the state. That's why I keep saying that I'm a, you know, a libertarian communist, and people think what? But I truly believe in this. And you said something about the returning to Marx. I believe Marx was a libertarian communist. You know, if you look at his ideal of the good life, it's one in which nobody tells him what to do, neither state nor corporation. And, you know, he reads in the morning, he um, goes fishing in the afternoon, uh, he writes uh, a theatrical play in the early evening, and then at night he plays cards with friends. And that, of course, comes from the German ideology, a young Marx, in which he believed in technology. So did Marx make the mistake of... Did, was Marx's mistake in falling into the historical materialism trap and class conflict uh, and, and no, failing no. to recognize the importance of technology? Oh, he never failed. No, 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 no. He was absolutely spot on. He always recognized the importance of technology. And you can read that yourself by reading the first few pages of the Communist Manifesto. It's a peon to technology and how technology liberates and smashes Chinese walls of superstition. Uh, like nothing else before in history. So he really celebrates the technology that capitalism gives to, gives rise to. Uh, he was spot on in saying that the history of humanity hitherto has been the history of class struggle. He, this is completely right. I mean, even Warren Buffett understands that, <laughs> and Bill Gates. Uh, where he was wrong, if I'm to you know pinpoint the main error of Marx, is he did not appreciate the importance that his theory, the significance and the influence his theory would have on people that claim to be Marxists later on. Because think about it, a whole empire was created and gulags were being built by Stalin, uh, invoking Marx. Marx did not imagine that his theory would give power to people like Stalin. He assumed that he was insignificant and it was the, the workers and the people out there that would create life in their own image and depending on their own um, you know, vision. He underestimated his own importance. Uh, if you go to your website now, Yanis, you have some interesting stuff on what is money really. And crypto is, is very hot, as you know. Lots of articles in the US press. There's a, there was a piece uh, in the New York Times about crypto banking, uh, and then some critiques of that. Uh, uh, for, for, from the crypto community about uh, the skewed nature of the New York Times. Is crypto the answer? Is crypto the beginning of the end of capitalism, or could it be, Yanis? 
When uh, Bitcoin came out in 2010, I studied meticulously or as meticulously as, as I could the code and all the claims made by Bitcoiners, uh, early Bitcoiners. And immediately came out saying that, by God, this technology, the blockchain algorithm is remarkable. It's ingenious, but it's not money. It can never substitute for state money, and it should never substitute for state money. So very recently, I have an article in which I explain what I mean by that, that the blockchain technology is wonderful for um, creating transparency when it comes to the monetary system, but it is a dangerous fantasy to believe that you can turn money into apolitical, that you can take it out of the remit of the state of the central bank. So my proposal, to be very precise and specific, is that central banks like the Fed in the United States, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, should create, uh, based on blockchain, a crypto state currency, which uh, allows us, or them, genuinely to move towards democratizing money. It's a big argument. I'm not sure that you want to get into that. But what effectively what I'm saying is, Crypto can be utilized, harnessed by the state, the state central bank, in a bid to democratize and create a lot more transparency when it comes to the money, the only money that can actually work and serve society, which is public money, not private money, which is what Bitcoin is. Uh, Yanis, you've also been, you, you talk about the state and the role of the state. You've been also involved in some movements uh, to connect the left or progressives across state boundaries? Is the future of progressivism, does it need to be international in the same way as uh, reactionaries seem to be building through people like Steve Bannon, uh, international organizations of reaction? Absolutely. Uh, all our main problems are international, global, like climate change, clearly. Even the United States cannot solve climate change on its own. China cannot do it on its own. So that's an international problem. Uh, debt. You cannot have one country um, dealing properly with the problem of private debt, public debt, when the others are sinking in debt. Uh, poverty. Uh, vaccines. Um, the pandemic. <laughs> you cannot have uh, zero COVID in one country when the rest are struggling. So internationalism is, by, by definition in my, in my head, uh, absolutely sine qua non. It is the solution. The problem is that the first people to have properly internationalized are the bankers who, after 2008, after having caused the great financial collapse of 2008, they banded together and they made the states and the central banks print you know, mountains of money on their behalf while the states were practicing austerity. So we had socialism for the bankers and austerity for the many. Um, and, and that created huge discontent. Donald Trump, as far as I'm concerned, is the product of that process. Uh, and, and then you have the Donald Trumps of the world responding to this international, inter, internationale of the bankers, and they create their own. And look at the way in which Donald Trump, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, Orban in Hungary, and so on, you know, they, they, they loved each other. And they became, as you said, a reactionary international. I call it a nationalist international. The only people who have not banded together are those who were the genuine internationalists, because you know 
the left has been internationalist from its inception uh, and it's time to do it so some of us got together some time ago and we're trying to build up what's called the progressive international initially it was bernie sanders and i that started the ball rolling in november of 2018 in vermont then you had something called the american presidential election that intervened and put that um uh, into abeyance but now we start we we have started again and we now have organizations that uh, have joined the Progressive International, um, amounting more than 200 million people. So we, we, you know, we keep going. Well, you don't seem that optimistic. Your, 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 in your dedication, you dedicate it to deny. I think that's your wife. Uh, you say, without whom another now would be unimaginable, and this now intolerable. Um, yes. Is one way to escape the now, the personal? It's the old leftist trope. Um, uh, Yanis, ca can we escape the injustices and evils of capitalism by retreating into the personal? Oh, should we? No, but the personal is political. So what binds me so strongly together with my partner and I, to whom I dedicate the book, is that none of us, neither of us can prevent ourselves from, from rushing into the world. So in the first year that we were together, that's 16 years ago or so, um, we traveled the world. Uh, she's an artist, a remarkable artist, I may say. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was an art project of hers to traverse all the harsh division lines in the world. So, you know, we went to Palestine, the hard division there, Northern Ireland, the Peace Walls in Northern Ireland. We, were, we traveled along the whole breadth and width of the U.S.-Mexican border. That was one of the most dangerous things we ever did. We were in Kashmir on the line of control between the Indian and the Pakistani side of Kashmir. And this is, this is how we combine uh, the personal, the very strong link that the two of us have with the political and the internationalist. Well, your book, Another Now, uh, a novel, uh, who um, is, I think, in many ways, an attempt to combine the personal and the political. It's a tremendous read, Yanis. Congratulations. I'm sure it's going to be well, another bestseller. So uh, you're talking to me, of course, from your home in Greece. In addition to Another Now, what else should people be reading in these strange times to make sense of reality, of our increasingly surreal, unimaginable reality? Well, you should read poetry. Uh, you should read Shakespeare, you should read the ancient tragedi tragedians, uh, literature. But if I'm going to, you know, I'm an economist, so if I'm going to make a recommendation, I'm going to recommend this book here by Matthew Klein and Michael Pettis. Trade wars are class wars. And the subtitle is How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. It's a great book. For all of you out there who are worried about the U.S.-China tensions, the new Cold War, because Michael Pettis is um, is an Anglo-Saxon economist, very good economist, who has lived and you know, for decades now in Beijing and teaches at the University of Beijing, and he brings a wonderful perspective. And I think the title says a lot: trade wars are really class wars. This is not a war between, and not not a contradiction between the United States and China. The tension between the two countries reflects tensions within the two countries, within China, within the United States. And it's a great read. Well, yours is a great read, uh, Yanis, another now. And you're a great interview. 
keep well, Yanis, uh, Yanis Varoufakis, author of Another Now. It's always a pleasure and honor to talk to you. And I hope in the not too distant future, we can do this live. So congratulations on the book, Yanis. Keep well. See you again very soon. Thank you. Thank you so much.